Hello and welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton. Today's conversation is about creative entrepreneurship. It's that tension between the left and right brains of people who are both creators and business leaders. Now, in this podcast, I interview a spectrum of entrepreneurs to learn principles of leadership. My goal is to help you use those ideas to make more confident decisions about money and investing. As a founder of Morton Brown Family Wealth, I want you to be a better leader of your financial life. Now, in this episode, we're going to learn how to bring creativity to business and savvy decision-making to any creative project, how to find your own unique voice, how to think about your next act when the ground shifts under your feet. My guest today is Zeke Zelker, a critically acclaimed and award-winning filmmaker slash entrepreneur who has a different approach to his craft, which he calls Cine Experiences, stories told across multiple platforms through live and virtual events. His projects don't just simply entertain, they engage audiences to become a part of the story. Now, some of his projects include Billboard, In Search Of, David Cronenberg's Body Mind Change, Logheads, and his current project, Project Immerse, a virtual experience, which is a collaborative thriller set in the paranoid age of deep fakes, shallow fakes, bots, and fake news that leverages pervasive web platforms such as Zoom and Miro that was currently workshopped at DEF CON. Zeke is the creator and producer of two organizations, Art Wars and Art Spark. Art Wars, a round-robin creation tournament, gets artists out of their studio and in front of a live audience where they create, share, and earn. Art Spark inspires third to fifth graders to lead healthy, creative lives by hosting assemblies focusing on nutrition, exercise, and mindfulness. They then organize art events where the students create a painting based on what they've learned. Zeke also guest lectures at universities, speaking about the intersection of art, commerce, and technology, and has been an adjunct professor at Lehigh University. Not short on entrepreneurial drive, Zeke recently launched Zcraft, a catering, meal delivery, and retail company that creates and curates delicious food items. Zeke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you and I struck up a conversation uh, probably about this time last summer we met and we were were talking finance and art and filmmaking and uh, in classic right left brain you know tension I had to leave the conversation to take the stage and play in the band. So we kind of started off there and decided let's get back together and revisit this. So um, why don't you start by telling us about the genesis of the creative entrepreneur. What was your path to this particular trajectory of life? Sure. So I have a very different upbringing where I was raised at an amusement park. Uh, my great grandfather founded Dorney Park. Uh, so as a kid, you know, you kind of like learn the learn very easily and very quickly the idea of entertainment and and business. But it's very interesting. It's like a lot of people you know think it's like oh my gosh, it had been so much fun and everything else where we were actually the worker bees. <laughs> and so we really very seldom got to enjoy how the outsider saw it. We looked at it completely differently. But that early education really uh, changed the way I kind of think. Back in the 80s, it was really big thing about being like Disney World and what um, Disney Company had done with the parks and so forth. But I already understood that innately where I didn't need to have that sort of education in school. Uh, and so that's also, too, is what changes the way that I think about even the creative property where I think about the entertainment, and then around that entertainment, you know, if you think about an amusement park, you have a ride 
or like a bandstand or something along those lines. But then around that, you'll have your concession stands, your games of chance, and your merchandise. I take that same sort of concept within my creative entities where I literally have the entertainment vehicle, but then around that I create different sorts of revenue streams so that I'm not hamstrung by just, you know, the audience interaction or something like that. I've got other ways to be able to generate revenue. That's wild. So so starting out from that that Dorney Park-like experience and then taking and applying it to things as creative as filmmaking. So tell me about this specifically. How did you get into the path of filmmaking? Oh, gosh. Uh, I got involved by, I had a friend, uh, Marcus Wagner, who was at Central Catholic. Uh, he went to NYU, and he asked me to produce his first film because he's like, you know, because my background is actually finance, uh, economics and finance, which I majored in at University of Maryland. And he's like, listen, you have this entertainment side, this business side, you make a great producer. And I had no clue what a heck a producer was, no clue what all. So I started to read and read and read and study. And then I realized, like, oh, my gosh, I, I fell madly in love with it. And so he ended up getting cold feet. We didn't actually produce that project, but then I uh, talked my way into getting into uh, Syracuse grad school for film. And then after my first semester, my professor's like, I've never seen anybody put together a production like you with no money. Uh, why don't you, you know, quit school, <laughs> you know, quit school and uh, make your first film just like John Waters. And little did she know, her name was Dana Plays at Syracuse. And little did Dana know that I was actually in John Waters' film Hairspray as one of the lead dancers. So it was very apropos. Yes, it was was just very interesting. And so I've been making films ever since. I literally moved home, made my first film Affairs, um, box office records at Civic. um, That actually enabled me to buy my first home. Uh, And then I also put me on the Sundance, you know, into the Sundance world because of like how I how I made money on that film, uh, very pe- people very eager to learn about. And so I ended up, you know, being kind of brought into the Sundance fold with, uh, at the first producers conference. It's funny you mentioned John Waters. I'm, I'm a Baltimore guy. And so also university of Maryland fan fear of the turtle. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, John, John Waters and I have the same high school alma mater in Baltimore. And oh, God, so he, okay. he was very much the local celebrity, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties with, um, uh, hairspray and Crybaby and then yep. some, some of those great films. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's an interesting cat. I can tell you that very interesting. He was supposed to be in billboard, but then he ended, it ended up being a, a, uh, surgeon conflict where he couldn't do it. So. So now how do you pick, how do you pick your projects? How did you go about as you went through, did you look at them from the sense of this works creatively and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to find the business or was was there an economic model that certain stories fit? I won't touch anything if I think I can't make money. I know that sounds really horrible as an artist or as a creative, uh, but that's literally how I have to think about it because oftentimes I can't just use my own resources. I have to go out and, and, and raise money. And if I don't feel that the thing can make money, then obviously why would you do the project, right? And so uh, I'm not saying that all my films have been have been profitable. You know, the industry completely took a, um, a nosedive in the past two, three years uh, with the advent of all the digital stuff. And so it's been very hard to actually be making money in film and then with COVID, the whole industry, you know, went away. So when I see a project, one, it has to interest me. It has to be quality. And then number two is I immediately think if it can, re- if it can make money, and then that's when I'll get involved. So when it came to finding your unique voice, did you always identify as being someone who's going to have that great balance of right and left brain? Or was it, did it just emerge over time and say, hey, listen, this is part of my identity. I'm, I'm the one that someone turns to when they want to have an economically viable creative project. How did you find that voice? 
I always kind of had it, I think. Uh, like, I grew up working. I mean, by no means did I have a silver spoon growing up by any, by any means. My family had a very hard time making ends meet. Uh, you know, we would clean real estate offices at the, in, in the middle of the night to get my mom through seminary, all sorts of things. So I've been a workhorse since I've been a kid. I was working full time at 12. And even though I was very active in sports and theater and things, I still had to work to help the family out. So that work ethic is very, very um, strong. And so I also know the value of a dollar. And then the thing is, like, if, if I see a project, one is it has to, like, you know, strike a, a chord with me. And that's paramount. And then I can figure out how to make money at it if I actually like the project. But I've, I've always been this way. I've always, like, I didn't learn how to be creative or I didn't learn how to make money. I've always been kind of, like, built for speed in, in that regard. And I don't run around with my hair on fire either. I'm pretty, I'm pretty conscientious. Like my wife will jump a lot faster than I will at things. And so I generally take an analytical thought process behind it. And I kind of have to envision the entire thing before I'll get, uh, become very active in something. In the state of entertainment right now, you, you mentioned the sea change that's happened in, in filmmaking and, and content creation. How do you think about the social experience of what you do? So people have been used to gathering in a theater to watching a movie. That's different from streaming it at home. How do you build a trusting audience in a virtual environment when, when we're missing that social connection now? You can't. If you can't do something theatrical and you build that, that trust and you build that awareness, uh, I don't think many things can transcend into the digital world. It just is, ends up being content and it's never going to be found. That's the challenge that we've been having with some of the latest titles and things because like there's so much content out there anymore that people just kind of gloss over things that they don't see, you know, Brad Pitt or a Meryl Streep and something, they're going to pass over it, you know? And so that's a challenge. Is like, I really think theatrical is a very big thing. And the thing is like, I've been able to uh, bring more revenue in on the theatrical side of things than I have been on the digital side, which is the antithesis of the industry. I'm completely backwards in, in, the, in the general model. And I don't know why that is, but it is. So Sumner Redstone, the chairman of Viacom, recently mm-hmm. passed away at 96 years old. And, and he was famous for saying, content is king. It is. So if, if content, if it's everywhere, what is there a variation on that? What is king now? What, what wins the day here in, in this environment? Unfortunately, it's quantity over quality. Um, you see it today in terms of like everybody thinks that they could shoot a great video with their phone. And mind you, technology with that has come a long way. And I will argue that you can create great images, but if you don't know how to frame something up or actually tell a story, it falls apart. Um, I actually followed Sumner in, in great detail back in the um, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, he actually started with driving fears, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, the funny thing about that is there's actually a huge um, Leah Valley connection to him where there's a gentleman named Al Maffa who had the patents on the technology where the voice boxes that you would hang on your cars, Al actually invented that. Uh, and it was from Eddie Living Katasakwa. Is that right? Yeah, and, and actually Al's got a lot of claims of fame. He actually, you know, had the first triple X triple X movie theater, um, the Franklin and Allentown, uh, which isn't a great claim to fame, but it is it is, you know, he has an interesting history. He passed away a number of years ago. But when I first found out that he was here, I ended up, he and I became very friendly. And I even know, not only do I know how to make, write a script, make the film, distribute the film, but I also know how to rip apart uh, film projectors as well to make things work. And that's what he taught me. Yeah, so content is king, but unfortunately it's a matter of, it's a quantity game now over quality. And that's where like, it just irks me to, to no end. Film has 
cohabitated with other artistic projects for you. So you, you, you have a lot of irons in the fire right now, mm -hmm. which I'm presuming that's been pretty beneficial as there's been ebbing and flowing. So tell me about the balance between your other projects that you have going on outside of filmmaking. Well, I've, I've always have done that, you know, like with Art Wars and ArtSpark, I've always, like, I've been doing that for, geez, um, Art Wars is coming up on 10 years, ArtSpark is coming up on nine. And so I, I'm a workhorse. You know, I, had, I made a, a statement at the opening of Billboard at Civic that, you know, I'm not a fancy filmmaker, I'm a grunt of creativity, which is pretty accurate. Uh, like, I like to work. And so um, I balance things pretty well because the thing is, too, it's like if I'm doing busy work or if I'm doing other sorts of things, I can actually make creative minds always running in the background. And I make discoveries that way as well by going at something, walking away from it, going at it again, walking away from it. There's kind of like a process that's been created because when you are a creative being, you're constantly thinking in the back, like kind of like running in the background. And you, know, you look at things a little bit differently. Like some people might look at something straight on and I look at all problems like a sculpture. I'll look at things like in a 360 view uh, because you're always going to see a different angle a different uh, perspective. Any problem I feel people really should need to do that is they need to take a step back and like literally look at it, you know, in a 360 view because you'll be surprised of like how many problems can be solved that way. If you know, and that's just as the way that I've always been. So two things that really jump out, you said the phrase is a grunt of creativity. Yeah. So just w willing to do the legwork and not accepting that it's, that this isn't glamorous. I'll take the, the, the hard work of creativity and that that'll I'll stand on that. Yep. I love telling stories and making movies. I hate the whole glitz and glamour BS about it all. I've never been a big person on that. I mean, don't get don't get me wrong, I love fine things and things along those lines. But like there's there's like there's a shallowness to it all. There's this big misconception of what creativity is. Like I'd rather be in the throes of like Pollock and, and de Koenig and and Warhol and Basquiat. I mean, like that is, you know, and how they create they they attack things. You know, and that's kind of like, you know, it's not like, oh, get me a freaking cappuccino, make sure it's got, you know, skim milk and all this kind of nonsense. It's a matter of give me a cup of black coffee because I need caffeine. <laughs> it's like, that's the way I look at things. And so, you know, I was in the Marine Corps. And so that whole brings a whole different perspective to my productions because like they run very tightly. Creativity is something that is innate in me and I love being creative and, and everything I tackle is a creative endeavor. But it's just a matter of like you need to do the work. Too many people are afraid to do the work. And that's one thing that I instill upon all the people that work with me is a matter of like, I will be the first one in. I will be the last one out, even though like I'm supposed to the boss, which I hate that word. I show them how much work you've got to do to be able to make something happen. We have two things here in, in common. I think we both have the military background and how that informs some of the views that we that we carry through the rest of our professional careers. It's hard, it's hard to shake the dirt off your shoes from that experience, right? Oh, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, I think we, we both have discovered that we have this healthy dissatisfaction with the industries that we've chosen to work in, yep. that you kind of look around and say, uh, I, I don't like this. I don't like this. There's kind of a pure path that, that's worth following here. Oh, there is. There is. There is. Yeah. Tell me about doing that in the Lehigh Valley specifically. So is, is that part of it to say, you know what, I could do this from anywhere. I choose to do it from here. Oh, I made a conscious decision to do it from here. At Syracuse, um, I could have gone to New York or LA in a heartbeat and been, you know, extraordinarily successful, but also very plastic. Uh, I'd rather have moved home, made a difference in my hometown and be as genuine as I can be. And that's the choice that I made. 
But the interesting thing is when the men, you know, Sundance or other film events, they're like, oh, you know, people from New York think I'm from L.A. People from L.A. I think from New York. When I say I'm from, you know, Allentown, you know, Lehigh Valley, they're like, what? You become memorable for that. Just like John from, from Baltimore. Is it easier to be a, a grunt of creativity or kind of stand apart from the crowd being in a community like this? It's harder. I can tell you that. Um, in it? some regards, it's more expensive. In other ways, it's cheaper. Mm. It's more expensive because you got to bring everybody in and house them, getting equipment in and everything else. Uh, so that becomes more expensive. But then I'm able to do things that you can't necessarily do in New York or in L.A. Like I can shut down streets pretty easily here. I mean, I do everything legally too. You know, I, you know, wanted a helicopter shot and, and found somebody that had a helicopter. We literally like hanging outside of the side of a helicopter flying up and down PPL building. <laughs> pretty, oh pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. But I'm not afraid of it. You know, again, you know, I used to jump out of the back of helicopters, you know, repelling out of them in the Marine Corps. So this is like, you know, at least I didn't have to do that in the middle of the night, you know. <laughs> so tell me about the genesis of, of ArtSpark. How did that come to be? Art Sport came about actually from Art Wars. And so let me tell you first how Art Wars started. So I speak a lot at film festivals and business schools and things. And, you know, I always say that any creative person can make money. You just have to create and think about how you can do that. And so I talk about film. This was a fine artist there. And she raises her hand. She's like, uh, I'm, an, I'm an artist. How do I make money? I'm like, well, sell your artwork. And she's like, well, that's not enough because nobody knows who I am. So on my drive home, I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, what can I do for artists for them to make money? And so I literally created Art Wars where we have a throwdown where any artist that wants to compete can compete. Uh, people pay $5 to vote. Uh, and then by the audience, 16 people are then selected to uh, then go into each of the battles. So there's four first-round battles. And you, so what ends up happening is every round, it's a little bit harder, a little bit different. But all the money that we collect, we split half of it amongst the artists that evening. The other half goes on to the grand prize. So we've had artists that have made over $5,000 over the course of four events, which is awesome. That's how Art Wars started. And then ArtSpark actually came from that because I was asked, you know, could you do this for kids? I mean, absolutely. And then we started to hone in on the nutrition and exercise sort of thing. When I was at Maryland, I wrote uh, an op-ed about the idea of how supersize is going to be the demise of culture because of the idea of how much fat and things are in, you know, supersizing things. Uh, and then Morgan ended up doing the film, you know, Supersize Me, which was great. Right. And yeah. I was actually at that Sundance and that came out too. It was kind of funny. And so... I've been always conscious of this too. And then I remember reading in the Washington Post, you know, how there was a school that uh, sent out these fat letters, you know, about, you know, kids that were obese and things or on the cusp of being obese and how important it is for exercise and things. And that was actually my alma mater of Emmaus, uh, Emmaus High right? School. So it was kind of weird wow. that these things kind of hit. And then, and so those things have always been in the back of my mind. And so that's how ArtSpark really came about was we have a very uh, big food element to it just because also we created things more around food as well because I was just very surprised about how many kids get fed breakfast, lunch, and sometimes dinner at the schools. And that's something I didn't, I was not yes. aware of. It's, it's interesting is like these kids go home to an empty house. It's not because their parents are abandoning them. It's because oftentimes they're single mothers that are working three part-time jobs because they can't get a full-time job because nobody wants to pay benefits. And so they're basically working 60 hours a week at like $9 an hour to have a roof over their child's head. 
And also, too, is it was, I was very perplexed when I found out that a lot of kids nowadays don't even know how to use a fork and knife. Because everything mm, that they're eating wow. is handheld or it's in a microwavable container. And so there's like some weird things going on in our society that many people think about. And I think it's time that we start to like, you know, kind of like stand up and make a difference about these sorts of things. You know, so I don't know how the whole art side of things goes into, into you know, um, food instability. But I, I, I see the path, you know, and you have to be creative to be able to fix it. And I think that's where like, you know, my creativity comes in. And it seems like it's a nudge. There's healthy eating, but there's also healthy decision making. Yes. And you're trying to nudge that and, and using art as the literal medium for, for trying to instill decision making where there might be a lot of choice in that particular life, but they, um, they're being encouraged to explore that right. at the right age, that, that third to fifth grade window. So that, that, that seems really really important right because also it also too is like when they're creating something based on nutrition exercise and mindfulness they actually end up owning the idea you know and that's the whole thing too is like it's not only a matter of being creative but also owning the idea and when you have somebody that creates something based off of a certain criteria they have to actually think about it they have to develop it and by doing that you're starting to already kind of ingrain the idea of healthy eating exercise and mindfulness just by asking them to create that way I love the idea. Um, my mother was an elementary art teacher by training. Oh, that's awesome. Before the acronym STEM and then eventually STEAM mm-hmm. came around, yep. art was just always infused through there. And it was a, a means by which we would learn a lot of things. That that was the, the phase of expression. And I still find that uh, we'll joke in a, in a meeting, I'll sit there and turn over my pad and start drawing pictures to illustrate something. And I'll pause and say, listen, I'm the son of an art teacher. I like to draw pictures with my numbers. But having a a means of creative output associated with an idea is is reinforcement. Right. That's how that's how we solidify. Ideas. That's why images are so profound and symbols. Oh, absolutely. But also too is like I think a lot of businesses, even smaller businesses, need to have somebody that is uh, basically a, a chief creative officer in them, uh, because even in stuffy boardrooms, and I've been in them, the idea of having somebody that looks at things completely differently ends up creating a different feel and a different vibe within um, the culture of an organization. Uh, and also, too, is that, you know, making sure that you think things through as well from a creative standpoint, I think it's extremely important for the longevity of, uh, of a company. That I think it's um, the term creative is underused in the business world. I think sometimes it is kind of housed. There's the the wonky people over there doing the the right-brained creative stuff, and uh, they're going to stay over there while we stay over here. But I like that that injection that you say there should be someone who's at the decision-making table helping do that and helping to support that. I think it's uh, one of the largest financial planning firms, one of the fastest-growing financial planning firms in the country. The, the name of the firm is actually Creative Planning, and I love that idea that they don't they don't shy away from that. Right. This is. It isn't all about stocks and bonds and, and picking funds. This is a creative endeavor. Yeah. And we're going to dive in. And it's, it's you, you kind of brought it up earlier, that 360 degree problem solving. Right. We're going to look at this from a lot of different angles and then be those grunts of creativity that get through to the solution. I, I love that concept. Every single decision, you really should look at things in, in, in a creative, uh, creative way. Yeah, that idea of every, every idea should have its complement. I imagine in filmmaking, every, every scene has complementary elements to it. That, that friction doesn't last very long if it's there. It has to be complementary and, 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 and seamless. Right, absolutely, absolutely. 
who are the people who set examples in your life for how to be the, did you, did you look at someone whether it was a, you know, Sumner Redstone or some of these other um, titans of industry, or even people who just may not be household names for us? Who did you look to and say, this person I'd like to emulate? My grandfather, um, Charlie Plark, who's, he actually chose to raise his family over having any ownership of the park. He and his father had a huge falling out. And so my family never got any of the uh, wealth of Dorney Park. Uh, but he made a very conscious decision to do that. And so I hold that kind of idea with me. Um, but he also was a very creative being as well. He was a, he was a master electrician by trade. But he was the most creative person I ever, I ever met in terms of how we could solve problems. He's one I've always looked at, you know, Walt Disney, obviously, because of that background. And also, like, just the way of creating worlds, uh, story worlds, I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is one that I would love to actually have coffee with Michael Bloomberg or Jamie Dimon from, uh, what is it, J.P. Morgan. Just because, like, I, because they're amazing finance people, but at the same time, they're creative as well. And I had the, the fortune of actually becoming friendly with Bob Rubin, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time when I was in D.C. And um, it was just unbelievable like how he approached the problem and how much he, he valued knowledge. He read so much, it was crazy. I couldn't believe how much he read. But those are the kinds of people. Uh, my wife is a big inspiration too because my wife is um, she's just a firecracker. Uh, she goes, 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 goes. I'm very grateful I have her in my life. And I'm trying to think of other people. Unfortunately, I've never had really any mentors. You know, there was no filmmakers in the Lehigh Valley. So I never really grew up with any sort of mentors. But my grandfather has always been probably the most important figure in my life, as well as my mother. My mother has always been one as well. It's interesting to hear you mention Walt Disney. I mean, obviously Disney being a massive content creator now, but Simon Sinek talks about Disney as being one of those uh, people who made uh, a tremendous pivot late in his life where he pretty much dropped everything and started on the Disney, the Disneyland project mm -hmm. in California. And his whole life, he, you know, he started with the mouse, he built it up through Snow White, and, and then eventually he said, this is the thing that I want to build. It's this place, it's this happy place that all the content has led up to, to this creation. There's a story that goes back to, it's in the book called uh, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, and it talks about the, uh, the Chicago World's Fair mm -hmm. in the late 19th century and how it was built up over hundreds of acres on the midway in Chicago, all of these luminous white buildings that, that pretty much emerged out of thin air and pretty disappeared pretty soon thereafter. But it was this vision of this great city. And he talks about all the workers that, were, that came into Chicago to help build this. And one of them was a gentleman named Disney, whose son Walt would come every day and watch the workers build this white city out of thin air. And he took up drawing at the time. And throughout his childhood, he kept drawing and drawing and drawing. Um, but that seed had been planted early on just by watching his father and the people working around him. And it wasn't until 1952, almost 60 years later, that he said, now's the time that I'm going to build it. And if you look at Disneyland, there's a lot of that element of, of this white city that's been constructed out of thin air as a, as a happy place. So Disney carried that creative nugget throughout his life until the time came to to deploy it right then. Right. There's, there's actually a couple of things to learn from that. One is, too, is a matter of like how I approach my, my filmmaking is always by building story worlds, uh, much like Disney has done. Uh, because what you end up doing is mitigating risk that way. And I don't know if that was Disney's intention, but it sure is Disney's intention now uh, to be as diversified as possible that you can have the same property and doing it 
you know, 10 different ways and, you know, exploited 10 different ways uh, to be able to make money. But the interesting thing about it is not many people realize like Disney started with a mouse. Uh, Dorney Park started with food. Uh, my family actually were French butchers uh, that came in from France uh, via Philadelphia and started by um, basically catering. And um, they had it to sell more food, so they brought in a carousel, and then they built the whip, and that's how Dorney Park started. So my, it's funny because now I'm getting into the whole food business again, and it's still very dear to me. Where like you know we can butcher and everything else, and it just is one of those things that you never know why the gestation of the company started. Not many people realize like Disney definitely pivoted, you know, late in life, and as I'm pivoting now as well, not so late in life, but uh, but my my family did with the whole idea of, you know, starting with catering and then bringing in rides and then other entertainment and so forth. So you just have to kind of like look at things from a very large scale, I think. And that's the beauty of Disney. Like I haven't been to Disney World in eons. I was there with my uh, wife and daughter this past spring for a cheerleading competition because she's a cheerleader. And and it kind of like brought back the kid in me and just like, I don't look at things, I look at things so differently because I, I, I grew up in a world of facades, right? And so right, nothing right. was real. And so my wife would be like, what the heck are you looking at? And I, cause I'd be behind something, looking up behind it and seeing stuff and how they do things. And, but that's the way it's done, you know? And, done. And, 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 and that is just the, the, the interesting thing about it. And there's, there's threads. So there are pivots, but then there's these common threads. And, and we harp on this when, when we talk about our relationship with money is that people who are most successful in their relationships with money are not constantly pivoting from one philosophy to another, from one strategy to another. There's a set of principles that guide them and you can you can trace them from the time they develop. You can trace them as they develop, hopefully in a healthy way, throughout their life. And it sounds to me, much like Disney, that this isn't dropping one thing and picking up another. This is following a consistent thread getting to your current venture with Zcraft. Right. So tell us a little bit about that. How? What, what's the common thread that comes through and now becomes this new enterprise? Well, so um, not many people realize this, but oftentimes on my film sets, I would cook breakfast for everybody. I would cook at least one meal for my team wow. um, a day. One was economic. Uh, number two was a matter of to get my head straight uh, because doing busy work made me think about the day. But then number three, it was the idea of when you make somebody a meal, they will do absolutely anything for you throughout the rest of the day. And so my people basically worked harder for me because I took the time out of my morning to make them breakfast. Uh, and you'll be surprised of like how much that means to people. Uh, and I think a lot of CEOs should really get into the cafeteria and make, make meals for their people. Um, just because like it has a whole different perspective. You listen and hear about these presidents and CEOs of companies and where I roll up my sleeves and get, you know, get dirty. Well, do it. Don't just talk about it. Do it, you know? And so with, with, with Zcraft, you know, I've always been cooking for other people and um, the film industry is at a really hard place right now and I have to take a step back. But at the same time, I still need to provide for my family. Uh, and so I basically started Zcraft where I'm, you know, creating different items, um, working out of a uh, community kitchen in, in Easton and, you know, I'm creating cold brew, I'm catering events. Like I just got another party today and I just basically, you know, launched this like 10 days ago and I've got like six catering events. <laughs> it's been crazy because also too, is the whole COVID thing is because I'm very conscientious of what I'm doing. Like everything's packaged. I thought through everything um, because again, my, my, the way I look at production 
and how I see things is a lot different than other people just because like I kind of see the steps very quickly. And so I'm just adapting. I want to, you know, create a number of locations. Uh, I want to bring in artisans and, and other people's stuff into the, the company as well once I get my, my feet underneath me. But it's really creating quality, healthful food. But it just is a matter of like, I love, I love good food. Uh, and I've been exposed to some amazing things and I worked my way through college uh, and my early film career working in restaurants and it's just in me. Like I, I love to entertain. I love to take care of people and I love food. So it kind of made sense. It sounds like there's a little bit of a balance between being a creator and being a curator of, of experiences. You're, you're reaching out and pulling elements of this and elements of that. Is that different from creating? Is it a different way of thinking about things? Well, being a creator, you have to know what's good. Right. And so I feel like I can curate good products because I've worked with some amazing chefs throughout the country. Now, being a creator, like for instance, I, I spent time in the Middle East. I spent time living in Israel, in Jerusalem, and I had to figure out a way to make money. And the only thing I knew was food. So uh, I opened a restaurant, a milkshake or a, a milk based uh, restaurant called Cheesecake. It was on the second floor of this building right off of uh, Yol Solomon. And I had everybody in the back of the house were Palestinian, and the front of the house were Israeli. And when they shut down the border, um, which always ended up on a Friday, which was our busiest day before the Sabbath, it was very interesting. You know, the idea of being creative and also being a business owner and at the same time curating, like I knew nothing about the culture, zero. And so I had to learn like by starting a business, but then you start to realize which farmers are creating what. And so you, you, know, you start to curate like literally the best ingredients you can. And so that's kind of like where you curate something that is that is the best that is available, and then you can create from that. They're just like, for instance, on a film set, you know, you use the best equipment possible. Um, yeah, you you can get by by doing stuff, but then the and the end product suffers for it. And so that's kind of like why curating and creating kind of go hand in hand. Uh, but you need to be able to have a good eye and have taste to be able to understand what what something good is. It's similar to an idea that that my partner Katie and I have talked about before, which is you don't always need to have the best original idea. Sometimes it's good enough to know that something is uniquely better being applied over there and bring it in and apply it here. And if you take uniquely better ideas and put it together in your own unique blend, that, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, I think sometimes there's the, the, the writer's block or the, the creative block that we hit sometimes is, oh my gosh, I have to start something from scratch and create this thing out of nothing, staring at the blank page. But in reality, if you look around and say, wait a minute, there's elements of this that I appreciate in a unique way, elements of that. And if I put them together, that experience of curation is pretty compelling. And it might be interesting for the audience around me or the diners in my restaurant or, or the people who are, who are using my business. No, no, absolutely. The reason that I brought up the whole Israel thing was a matter of like a complete fish out of water and trying to make do really fast. And But I realized it was a problem with doing regular cheesecake is because graham crackers are basically made with lard and lard is a pork product. Uh, so uh, that's one reason why cheesecake was never a big thing in Israel. Um, and so I made, you know, a crust using, you know, vanilla wafers, brown sugar, you know, a little bit of almond milk. And, and that's how the whole thing started. And it was really cool. And I ended up selling the business for, you know, 10x of what I started it for, which is pretty unbelievable in six, <laughs> in six months. But that's the thing. It's a matter of like, you see a problem. And you really have to think about it and how you're going to make money at it and also provide a good product. Um, you have strikers out there. You've got people trying to make it rich. Like the whole, like you and I, the last time I think we were talking about Kodak, right? Yes. And that's a very case in point where people being greedy, looking at not creating a quality product, but literally looking at greed. 
And greed will get you nowhere in life. It might make you wealthy, but wealth isn't everything. I think it's the quality of life and, and the quality of being is more important than wealth. You know, you use a phrase there that, I, that we're hearing more and more often these days is less emphasis on up or down levels of wealth. It's the, the focus is on quality of life. Yes. That we're all really attuned to what we can't do right now. Oh, absolutely. So what are the things that we can do that enhance our quality of life? And, and it's different ways of consuming food. It's different ways of consuming entertainment. It's different ways of, of socializing. But I've never heard so much conversation about, I just want to enhance my quality of life. Yeah, it's important. And that, getting back to the whole idea of, of cinema versus you know streaming. You know, the quality of going to a theater and having that experience is a lot different than plopping your, yourself on a couch and half falling asleep half the time. You know, right. it's, it's, it's two different things. One's quality and one's quantity, you know, and I'd rather have something quality than quantity. And I've always been that way. Thank God. So I want to tie back another thing that you said earlier on, which is you've had some experience in public speaking, guest lecturing. Imagine yourself in front of, you know, the, what's, what's not happening right now, a lecture hall. Uh-huh. full of people in the early 20s. What what are you sharing with them in August of 2020 um, that might be your unique insight for that generation who may, you know, their, their summer internship was canceled. The industry that they thought they were going into may be on the rocks. And they're wondering about how to build up the resilience that you've shown in your career to navigate different phases. What would you share with them? given the stage. I, I would go back to something I said earlier. It was a matter of like every problem, you have to look at it like a piece of sculpture, not only a 360 view, but also a complete uh, spherical view. You know, look uh, you know, above it, look underneath it, look around it, look everything else, because as you move, you can see light shifting. Uh, and those little shifts is what can create an opportunity, right? And so that's a big thing as a matter of, you know, don't look at this as being a problem, or like, what was me sort of thing. Think about how many opportunities are out there. Like for instance, I had a meeting last week. I don't want to start naming names, but I have a partner in something. And they're like, well, we're not going to do it because, you know, we can't do things in person and everything else. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, you know what? This is our opportunity to scale. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, why do we only have to worry about this little part? We can do this nationally. Right, right. What? Like They, they completely looked at me like I had four heads. Well, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, I'm going to create it. I'll, I'll make it work. You know, thank God I'm a content creator so I can do it. Uh, and also too, as I've got enough friends and stuff in, in technology and things, the stuff that we're doing in Colombia and things will blow your mind, by the way. Like we're doing stuff that's completely off the charts. Uh, but thank God, like I've, I've surrounded myself with these kinds of beings that I can look at things completely differently and I can be challenged. The big thing too is a matter of like, do not be afraid of challenge. Yeah, because like a challenge is something that you can look at and overcome and feel good about yourself. But also to us have an open, open mind too. Don't only look at things from your own vantage point, look at them from somebody else's vantage point. Just like how everything is so conflicted right now in terms of politics and everything else. Like I still read like conservative things. I read liberal things and I form my own opinion. You know, that's a big thing is a matter of like people are spoon fed things. Like I canceled, you know, cable and now I'm reading, I literally read five newspapers in the morning, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg and the morning call. I, I spend basically an hour and a half, two hours reading newspapers almost every morning. Is that right? And and just because like, I like to know what's going on in the business world because I, I, I love business and I always have. And, but the, my big thing, again, getting back to the 20 year olds is like, if you find a problem, find an obstacle, look at it from a different perspective. Don't get flustered right away. 
you know, don't walk away either. Have the integrity of not walking away from something because too many people quit too damn easily anymore. And that drives me nuts too. The one thing I have to say about if anything, my personality is like the amount of perseverance I have for something. Like I will not quit until I make it happen. Uh, it might take me years to get it done, but I will not quit until it's done. And that's the thing that people I think really need to realize is that other people then see that as well. And like, you know, uh, future bosses and everything else. And also don't, you know, run into things with uh, head forward either. You know, you have to take a little sidestep and everything else to kind of reapproach things. Uh, meaning that don't be so aggressive and trying to get a job from somebody where it puts you off. Like I've had that happen to me quite a bit lately. Like I have a lot of people hounding me, you know, to work with me and stuff. And I'm just like, like right now, I, I don't know what's going on. So I can't really help you, unfortunately. So. I'm glad you mentioned what you read because I'm going to finish up with that question. But one of my favorite books and one of the most frequent books that I've given out to people is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Are you familiar with that one? I am not. So Pressfield, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance, wrote a bunch of other screenplays, but spent the first 40 years of his life not doing any of that and just staring at a blank page, a writer who couldn't write. And The War of Art is about overcoming the creative challenges of staring at a piece of paper every morning and writing your great novel, writing your great story, whatever it might be. But that book has always resonated with me. I've read it probably once a year for the last five years. It's a short read. Pressfield talks about just overcoming that resistance of when you bump up against the challenges of facing a blank page every morning or whatever your creative endeavor is, how do you overcome that? So if when you get stuck, What's your technique for getting back on track? Well, so it's interesting. Resistance, right, creates friction. And friction creates warmth. And warmth is basically a way of creating energy, right? And so it's just a matter of like, I, I don't mind resistance. I actually, quite honestly, like I'm better when I'm when I'm dealing with adversity than if everything is is okay. Like I, I, I don't like to feel comfortable. Looking at a like a like I like to call it like a cursor blinking because I write more than I do anything else right now, but I literally like will spend some time, um, take a step back and reflect, uh, and then approach. That's really like how I generally you know think about things. And also too is like before I go in to shoot any film, I don't look at anything or read anything. Uh, I won't watch any movies, no TV. I'll the only way I'll get inspiration is by going to art museums and and thinking about it that way, and going up and looking at the brushstrokes and and the the ideas of color and why they they chose to do something over another, and constantly questioning. Uh, I think the big thing is like when people have a problem or they don't know where to go, they need to ask questions, uh, not necessarily of other beings, but also of themselves. And what is the what is the reason why you're creating or what you're creating? Uh, and then that generally can spark some some ideas. So, what are you reading and or listening to these days? What what what's your what are your, you have the five newspapers a day? What what are some of the things that are your inputs? Um, well, right now I'm reading Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear because with all this whole COVID thing, I generally would be at my studio before at like seven in the morning and leave at six at night. But I haven't been doing that much because I'm not in production, but I'm in a different type of production with food. So I'm reading that. I don't listen to books. Um, I just have never been that. I'd rather read than, than listen. Because uh, if I'm listening to something, I don't necessarily pay 100% attention. I'm trying to think what else. Like, oh, in terms of listening to, like, I, I'm a big jazz nut. I love jazz. And I'm actually rediscovering early uh, Louis Armstrong, not, not as a singer, but actually as a, as a trumpet player, uh, which not many people realize he was one of the best trumpet players besides singers, too, uh, and what he did for jazz. Those are kind of like the things that I'm, that I'm doing right now. 
you hooked me up with one of my great pandemic listens, which was after we met in January, you sent over that recording of Louis Armstrong at Muhlenberg College. Yeah. That was from 19, what was it the early 50s, was it? Was. It was, I think it was 52, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's just an excellent recording. My, my kids would walk into the office and I have a turntable kind of behind my home office desk and I'd put that on and the kids would come and say, who is that? What is this? And they just and they would just sit there listening. They'd never, they'd never heard that before. So it's just fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, and actually my grandfather was in the audience that night too. Was he really? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of oh. weird because I remember him talking about it uh, and then like I was listening to him like, oh my God, this is the recording because Louis Armstrong didn't come through here much. I remember him saying he saw it at Muhlenberg College. Because uh, they were trying to get him then at Castle Gardens at Dorney Park. But it's so bizarre that my grandfather was in the crowd that night. Yeah. So where can people go to find out more about you and your projects? So film side of things would be idreammachine.com. And then for Zcraft, it's uh, zcraft.com. You know, Zcraft is what I'm focused on right now. And we're just having fun and, and, and nourishing people. Excellent. Zeke, thanks for joining us today. Zeke Selker, entrepreneur creative, left and right brain. This is a great discussion. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Kenneth. I appreciate it. Take care. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.